You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Welcome to the Chris Spangle Show. Thank you for joining us here on the program. I am so excited to have this conversation today. I love when I can talk to people who are going outside of existing systems that maybe aren't functioning the right way for everybody and have innovated a different path. And today we're talking to Mark Sheeran, who is the chairman of the freedommodel.org, which helps those who are suffering from addiction and uh, gets them right back on the road to recovery. And we have a a really interesting conversation planned, I think. Uh, when you sent me your pitch, and I read your pitch, Mark, it was an immediate yes, because you've got a new book and a program called The Freedom Model for Addictions, Escape the Treatment and Recovery Trap. And you talked a little bit about your story, but just give us the elevator pitch of what you do and what the Freedom Model is and why it exists. Well, in, in 1988, I was, uh, I got a, I was involved in a DUI crash and I could have killed a couple of people and uh, I was put into the system, right? That's a, that's sort of a common story in America today. And I had a drinking and drug problem for most of my teen, well, all of my teen years and uh, a very serious drug problem. And um, so I was put into the system, but prior from the accident, this is an important nuance here. Prior to going to treatment, I had a six-month period between the accident and going to treatment where my life just took off because I quit drinking and drugging. I really had a great experience rebuilding my life on my own. I didn't go to treatment. Um, and then the courts caught up with me from all the charges that were pending, and they put me in treatment for 18 months. And it was a horrible experience. I was taught that I was an alcoholic. I would forever be an alcoholic. I was broken, uh, that I had a chronic progressive brain disease. My brain was hijacked by drugs. All these things that you commonly hear in American and Western culture. Well, I didn't buy it because I had this six-month period where my life took off and I wasn't drinking and drugging and I did it by myself. I, it wasn't, I wasn't in treatment. So my experience didn't match the narrative. And so I had this really bad experience in treatment where they said, you better accept that you have a disease because that's the only way you're going to get well. And I said, that's just not true. I know a lot of people that used to drink and drug and they just moved on with their lives. So the point is, after this entire experience, I, I got out of treatment after they worked on me for 18 months and I had a suicide attempt because I, they convinced me I was broken. So I went into treatment in good shape. I came out of treatment 18 months later, devastated and completely, uh, I basically bought into the model. And at that suicide attempt, I was going to shoot myself. I had a moment of clarity that I was much better before I went to treatment. Hmm. And that is where the freedom model started. And that was December of 1989. I was 19 years old at the time. And I said, with that very clear thought, I said, I'm going to build a better model because something is drastically wrong here. And so I spent the last 32 years building something that is counter 
to what exists in, in really the world now, which is the 12-step model. Everything is, emanates from that disease perspective. And I said, is it a disease? And that's where my research started. And basically the first 12 years, I, I was working in the existing paradigm because there was no freedom model. I had to, I had to sort through the research. I had to, to build a different model from, from the ground up. And, and that's what I did. I lived with my, my guests at my retreat for 12 years and I rebuilt the model. I, I created the first non 12 step model in existence. And basically what I did was I taught people they were okay. And then what I found lastly, this is the last part of my little pitch here is that there was a lot of research that backed up what I was saying that was never talked about. You know, there was guys like Stanton Peel, Jeffrey Shaler, eventually Carl Hart, uh, uh, just a tremendous body of work that showed that this is absolutely not a disease. It is a, a function of choice and habit making with bad information. And if you have a lot of bad information, you'll make bad choices because you don't have the correct objective way to figure out a problem. And uh, so I just presented all of this evidence that you could move past the problem without meetings, without treatment, without this need for support. And it took off and we had the highest success rate of any program in the world. And, you know, the rest is sort of history. And then we codified that in this book, The Freedom Model. And, and of course, the programs that we run. I've been through a couple uh, non, uh, not substance 12-step programs, um, uh, but have been to, um, what's the one for loved ones of those suffering? Oh, from yeah, um, Al-Anon. Al-Anon, yeah. I've been to a couple Al-Anon meetings. Um, and CODA meetings. And I, to be honest, my experience was, it was kind of sad, right? Because you go and you're, you're talking to people who are kind of their, their main paradigm is their love of one's sickness. their like their depression around this stuff. And I know it's a place to excise it, but like, if you've been going to this place to get better for 12 years and you're, you're just still kind of in that place, that doesn't seem like healthy to me. Uh, so I, I didn't really keep going back, but I did find it to be like a re refreshing to vent. Um, but when I hear you kind of say some of that, um, I'm thinking, who is this guy who just create? How many people have been helped by these twelve step programs who depend on meetings? I've got friends that go to meetings that just desperately need that time to go and depend on it. You know, it's it's sort of the old concept of, uh, of conservatism. You know, if you're out in a field and you see a fence. And you don't necessarily like that fence. You should still ask yourself, why does that fence exist? Yeah. Right. So when you look at this and you you look at the twelve step program, you go, there needs to be something better. Like, why do you say that? Because so many people have been helped by these programs. Why do you think you found something that's better than something that millions of people have gone through? Yeah. Well, just because there's millions of people going through something doesn't mean it works. And it's it, maybe it, maybe those people were getting well in spite of, not because of the very thing that they were teaching. Let me give you an example, just from a common sense perspective of we are what we think, right? We are what we think. That's just a fact of human living. Um, if you teach somebody that they are powerless over alcohol, which is step one of the 12-step model, and you teach them that they have to say that for the rest of their lives, even when they don't drink. Is there any commonsensical way that that makes sense? It doesn't. Now, what it does do is it makes a person feel as if they're broken and they're in need of a meeting. And so now their perspective is I need meetings instead of drinking, which is fine if that's what they want to do. 
But I was asking the crucial question, is it objectively necessary? And then what I found was there's, there's these massive studies that the government has done with over 43,000 people in them over, over decades of time that prove that 91% of drinkers get over the problem whether they're treated or not, if you factor in age. In other words, we all grow out of addiction. 99% of methamphetamine users get over the problem whether they're treated or not. 98% of cocaine users, 96% of heroin users. So at this point, you start asking yourself, where did this paradigm come from? And why are we teaching people that they're sick or have a disease when there's no pathology, right? There's no virus. There's no pathogen. There's nothing happening. You can't look under a microscope. And so you start to realize that their argument starts to break down. Now, your question is, as a libertarian, this is a great question. Why does AA exist? That's a historical question where you have to understand it has a social function. And that is, who wants to really deal with a guy like me when I'm drinking and being an ass? Nobody. And so what AA became was a very convenient place to push people in a very seemingly virtuous way to say, hey, there's a place for you. Go to this meeting every night. Go to this rehab out of sight, out of mind. Now, I don't think it's malicious. I don't. I think it creates a scenario where there's a place where everybody can say, hey, you go there and and I don't want to deal with the problem anymore. This is why parents will spend one hundred thousand dollars to a rehab. They don't even ask what the success rate is, Hmm. you know, because the problem when you have somebody like me and my cups living with you, you'll do just about anything to get me out of your mind. You know, if you ever lived with a heavy, heavy, problematic drinker, drug taker, it's a nightmare. Yes, it is. Yes. (laughs) So it provided a large social place, a function in our society to take care of the problem. Nobody was asking if it made sense at the time. Yeah. It sounded good. If people feel ill-equipped or don't have the tools, and they may be totally right on that, uh, in dealing with a loved one or a family member, and they feel, you know... Well, th- th- this is at least something. Um, yes. yes, that's exactly correct. Yeah. Uh, so what is the freedom model? So if, if it's not meetings, if it's not, you know, kind of this yeah. self-victimization, you know, yeah. how do you start to attack the problem? Because, yes. I mean, we don't disagree that the problem is very real, that people do have addictions, that right. this is something to overcome, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah, okay. that problem is massive. It's tragic and massive. So we don't disagree on that. The question is how to address it. Um, And so what is the freedom model? It is two things, three things. First, it's sweeping away the mythology of the 12-step paradigm, which is that it's a disease. It's not a disease. It is a habit. It's a confounding, confusing set of ideas. Um, But it is demonstrably not a disease, and you are not powerless over a substance. And so what AA did in the early days as their ethos is they said, the drug has power, you are powerless, and the human does not have power. And that's objectively backwards. A human has power and has a mind and a thinking apparatus and a substance doesn't. It doesn't contain life. It doesn't have motives. It doesn't have drives, desires. So they switched that. So I have to switch it back to reality and say, no, you are the causal creature in this relationship. You're the one picking up the drink. It does not have power. Alcohol is not, as AA says, cunning, baffling, or powerful, right? So I have to get rid of that idea scientifically. And so 
probably three quarters of the book is devoted to undoing mythology of our society and the treatment industry, which is beholden to that model. And then the next part is moving on with your life, right? How do you change your mind, your mind, not necessarily your brain, but your thoughts? How do you change your thoughts and ideas about yourself and your self-image? And are you an addict and alcoholic or are you a human being that had a habit in the past? Right? Yeah. And then the last part is about really moving on, which is the next stage, which is what does the next stage of your life look like as you abstain or you moderate your drinking or drugging? Um, what are you going to do for an avocation career? Are you going to repair relationships? How do you do with that? So, so the nuts and bolts of moving forward in your life and looking at the problem as a past problem, not as a current or potentially dangerous future problem. We have to move away from this idea that alcohol is somehow or drugs are somehow, you know, conspiring against us. <laughs> yeah, okay. I think that's a good, we've got a war on them. You know, I don't know yeah. if you've heard, but they're so evil. We've got a war on them. So I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, uh, <laughs> right. Um, yeah. yeah, I think that kind of drives with, you know, when it, I've never drank just because of the drinking problems of loved ones. Uh, this is a personal issue for me just because I've I've lived through it. Uh, and it, it from my experience, people who have substance abuse issues, it's never the drinking or the drug that is the problem. It's not the addiction that is the problem. It's the unmet emotional issue that they're using the substances to hide from. You know, yes. and we all do this. For me, it was, you know, love addiction. I, if I'm not dating somebody, I'm not worthy, you know, right? For some people, it's gambling. For some people, it's it, you're you're using these as distractions to get at the real root of your emotional issue. Do you find that to be true? Like, how do you address that central issue that somebody is struggling with? Well, that's a, that, that what you just described is a very Western attitude towards drinking, where we connect human problems to drinking and drugging. There are many countries and many cultures where they do not do that, where they would hear what you just said and they would go, huh? Why is he talking about drinking it? What is he talking about? So I'll give you an example that of a country that's sort of in the middle of that process where they don't see it quite the way you do. And that's the Italian culture. So the Italian culture drinks more per capita at a younger age and more volume in a lifetime of the average citizen than we do here in, in America. We're pretty heavy drinkers, you know, uh, and drug takers. And yet their problem with it from everything from infidelity to whatever, car accidents, traffic infractions, drunk, public drunkenness, social issues, is about a quarter of ours. Hmm. So you say to yourself, is there some real weird genetic anomaly with the Italian people? Well, no, there isn't. It's the way we see things. Ultimately, our drinking norms or our drugging norms are what drive it. For instance, you could go to places in South America where they produce cocaine and there's literally piles of it and the workers don't take it. Now, if you had piles of cocaine in Harlem or in downtown rural America, for that matter, people would be scrambling for it. Now, that's simply because of the way we see it. They see it as currency and an avenue to a better life, money. So they don't squander it. We are affluent and have a view that it is power, that is a powerful drug and therefore we go crazy for it. So it's really important to know that if you have emotional problems and you connect emotional problems to substance use, that that is a cultural idea. It is not a, an inevitability. So I have a chapter called Learned Connections where we break that and we show 
the person who's got a substance use problem, hey, did you know that you can be depressed, be anxious, have a really bad day and not stick a needle in your arm? Did you know that? Most of my guests will say, no, I didn't know that. I've been told my whole life that I suppress my my emotions with my drug. Well, I tell them, keep thinking that and you will. But it doesn't have to be that way because there are many people that live in third world countries in abject hell in a civil war with people dying all around them and they don't drink and drug. And they certainly have stress in their life. They certainly have anxiety and yet they don't drink and drug. So I had to look at that as a sociologist and say, boy, there's a lot of different ways that we see this with the same drug, meaning the same molecule in the same genetic you know, human and yet completely different behaviors and ways of seeing it. So, so how do you think we got here? How did we get to that place? A couple of ways. Uh, one is we are hyper, hyper focused on anything that makes us uncomfortable. And we have a tremendous amount of money. And that money funds uh, the, the psychiatric or psychological industry, right? I mean, the treatment industry is $45 billion dollars. Uh, a year just in America alone to, to sort of keep people moving along. We have a war on drugs. If drugs aren't powerful and they don't overtake the population, well, all those budgets go away. If we legalized every drug, there would be no budgets for that, right? So you would literally dry up massive industries. So we have a huge societal need to keep drugs and the folklore around the powers of drugs alive in our culture. And treatment's just the downstream product of that idea that it's powerful and can overtake you and compel you to use. Without that narrative, the whole war on drugs goes away and the treatment industry goes away. And you're talking at that point hundreds of billions of dollars in budgets. So, so I think everybody listening understands that first part. But that comfort part that you just talked about is something that i become keenly aware of over the last two years. Uh, can you talk more about that? What What is it about Americans that they have a deep need to not be uncomfortable in any way, shape, or form? Well, I think we're shifting into two different places culturally. One is you have people in power and then you have minions. And the populace in general is slowly slipping into this, a serf society, right? A feudal society where if you have people that are resilient, uh, free thinking, uh, and, and know that they, they have some discomfort in life and they have a certain toughness and independence, well, you're not going to be able to control them. And I think that slowly with the amount of money and affluence that we have as a culture, it's very easy to live easily. You know, we don't have the problems in a lot of, that a lot of third world has. So as we've gotten generationally softer, uh, the powers that be, I call it the, the tyranny of experts. There's a great book called The Tyranny of Experts. You might want to read. It's fantastic. Um, that we have, we have tyranny of, you know, you, you're weak. I went. Here's an example. I went to a, 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 my child's elementary school, and on the wall for a project, they had how these kids did a project on depression, anxiety, and drug use. <laughs> They're six-year-olds <laughs> and the susceptibility that if they have a bad life or are uncomfortable, that they are now susceptible to drug addiction, suicide, anxiety. At six years old, I was playing with Play-Doh and out in the dirt, having fun and, and trying to kiss a girl. I yeah. mean, whatever, you know, so, so 
I, th- what we're doing is we're educating kids to see things in this framework of fragility and that we are at the mercy of emotions. And so we're creating the very problem that we are now funding to fix. So one feeds the other. And so I think it's a, a, it's a classic control power model that every society that's been free falls into eventually, hmm. unfortunately. I don't know where to take it from there because that's an interesting point and it's something that I've I've kind of seen too like this notion of everybody's anxious and everybody's depressed and everybody's you know you just watch memes on on Instagram and it's it's just kind of a wallowing in yes. this like oh what was me and I I've participated in it myself and then you just sort of get to a point where you're like I'm choosing to be this way yeah <laughs> yes you know, yeah. and, and I think that general lack of of mental health, like the cult of mental health, where we're all trying to be healthy. Friend said to me, like, therapy is really good, and I advocate therapy. It really changed my life for the good. But yeah. he he said to me, he goes, there comes a time where you are thinking about this too much that it then becomes a spiral. Has that been kind of your experience with some of the treatment, you know, culture and and all that too? Oh yeah, yeah. Well, look at it. it you talk it, about the recovery society. Maybe that—that's a good place to touch here too. Yeah. yeah, the recovery society is our preoccupation with the supposed drugs and their magical powers to alleviate emotional problems. And um, that's a strong statement that a drug could alleviate your anxiety, your depression, uh, your traumas. Because if drugs actually did that, because we all have trauma, we all have depression, we all have anxiety at some time in our life. If a drug, if a synthetic drug or a natural drug could actually go into our mind, leave the brain tissue, go into the metaphysical mind, know what you were thinking at the time and modify your thoughts for you. My God, wouldn't we? Everybody should take heroin. But we intuitively know that it doesn't do that, don't we? Until we're taught over and over and over that you're self-medicating. Now think about that. How is heroin or drinking or cocaine or methamphetamine or whatever a self-medication for emotional problems? Because emotional problems don't sit in your brain tissue. They sit in the metaphysical mind. So how does a physical molecule that has no ability to think for itself How can it go from your bloodstream, from your brain tissue, and then go into the metaphysical mind and compel you to use more and take care of your problems? Now, I'll tell you why people believe this. First, really good advertising for 100 years, number one, that drugs are a medicine, right? Um, And powerful. And demons on the other side. They're bad and they're they're responsible for everything bad and they're responsible for everything good. This is a a classical critique of D.A.R.E. You know, yeah, by, by libertarians, yeah. yeah. You're going yeah. in and teaching fifth graders drugs are bad when they're not thinking about drugs at all. That's exactly right. Well, you know, this is a crack pipe. And the kid's like, oh, is it? You know, he never would have saw a crack pipe in his life. It was insane what we were doing. Insane. Thank God they stopped it because they saw that, that their friends were, were really bad. Um, so so we, we, as a culture, we've just gotten to where if we believe that a drug has this capacity to do this, well, then everybody should be doing it. And we built value into it. And it's really remarkable. So we've developed into a preoccupied, recovery-centered society. And unfortunately, 
Um, what people don't know is that your emotions come from the way you methodically frame a situation. You know, one guy can go to war and come out okay. Another guy can go in the same battlefield and see a completely different experience, you know, and yet they might be, you know, 10 feet away from each other and or whatever the situation. It's how we frame something and uh, drugs can't go in and change our mind for us. But if we believe they do, then they then they do. Right. Then the experience of the physical high gets interpreted as a medicinal agent. So that's why drugs get, why it's so confused is because there is a physical component to drinking and drugging that is very real. And that is you get sloppy with drinking heroin, the downers, or with amphetamines, you get up, right? So there's a, an effect on your, what I call the meat suit. And then we interpret in the mind with whatever we have been taught to interpret it as. If you're an Italian, you interpret it as a social lubricant, as a part of your social life. If you're in America, it's spring break or, you know, some other fantasy that we've created. So let's, let's like, less about like the social constructs that you're, you're fighting against here with this model and trying to change and talk about the personal experience of a person that comes to your program you know, buys your book and, and comes to you personally, you know, let's say I have an issue and I come to you. How, what, what journey are you going to take me on? What's, you know, I'm not okay. going to say what steps will you take me through? I don't want to offend you. Uh, but, <laughs> but you know, how are you going to help me get from point A to point Z? Okay. Well, it depends on, on the model that you choose. Let's say if you were part of our membership, which we, ju- we just launched, that has, that would be, a video tutorial. There's 85 videos pre-recorded. You would go in from the comfort of home and you would have me and Michelle and pre-recorded presentations teach you the entire curriculum at your pace. Lots of people love that. Thousands of people love that. They don't want to go somewhere. It's 39 bucks a month. They're just like, I want all the information. We have the family program. We have all of it. So that's one option. But let's say you need a little handholding like I did. Right. I need a person to work with me. I had the original researcher, Jerry Brown. He I was the first student of his. Um, Then we have private instruction so I could teach you from home just how you and I are doing it right now. We would have a class one on one. We don't do anything group. Everything is one on one in private. And then if they're at a retreat, it would be one on one in this classroom right here, um, sitting in the classroom. Um, Now, the journey would be this. We would start with a conversation. We would build rapport. I would understand you. I would have to start as an instructor to understand your life. I would tell you about me just like we have done. Then we would get into the chapters. I'd give you a chapter. uh, I'd give you a bunch of material with video and you would go to your room and you would watch it and then you would highlight and da-da-da-da-da. Then we would come down and have a discussion about it. And in that discussion, I'm listening as any of our certified instructors have been trained to do. And I'm listening and we go through the workbook. We go through your highlights of the book material. We go through anything, any critiques you have, and we hammer out the content. And in the content, I'm, I'm undoing all the mythology. If you say to me, um, you know, I'm an alcoholic, I would say, well, let's go through chapter eight through 10. Let's get rid of this idea that you're an alcoholic. There's no such thing. And they go, no such thing. I'm a, I drink a case of beer a day. And I say, I understand that. You have a preference for heavy use, but you're an individual with a preference. You are not a condition. 
So there, that would precipitate a conversation to undo the mythology that you have a condition. This is just an example, right? Then we would go into chapters 8 through 10 that deal with self-image, breaking down the alcoholic addict identity into an identity of just a human being that likes his grog, <laughs> okay? And why? And then what's behind that preference might be a whole bunch of misinformation that I have to pull out of you and show you this isn't scientifically correct. It's objectively wrong. You have a lot of logical errors here. Let me correct them with you over a period of weeks. And at the end of three to four weeks, you come out and you're like, I know more about addiction or the lack thereof than most people. And they, and plus we're going to also in that journey, talk about your future as well, build a future uh, in whatever capacity you need. Now <clears throat> I'm going to be extremely unfair to you. And this Go. is a criticism that you've heard before. And that's why I'm saying this to you. All I just heard you say, Mark, is that you're making excuses for bad behavior, that you're giving people permission to drink. That sounds to me like you're just trying to make it okay. What accountability is there to end, you know, are you really getting results with that kind of psychology instead of just being tough on people? Yeah. So, so first of all, do I give permission to somebody to drink again? That's a real common one when they hear this. They get scared. Um how could I possibly give permission to anybody to do anything? I, I'm, I'm in no authority. I'm an instructor that is here to serve you with information. So if the information says that you have the capacity to drink moderately, you do. Everybody does. And they say, well, what about the bum out on the street? He doesn't. No, no. The research shows that he has volition too, and they, they do stop drinking. Okay. Um, so I'm not telling you you should drink. I'm saying that it is possible for you to do so moderately if that's what you actually want. You may not want that. You may want heavy use or you may want to abstain. So my point is, I don't give permission to anybody. What I do is I lay out all the options objectively that are true, and then you choose what's best for you because how could I possibly know what's best for another human being in their autonomous mind? I couldn't possibly know that. Now, I could push you into abstinence like every treatment program does and says, and try and scare you into it. And we know how that works five rehabs later, right? <laughs> and, you know what I mean? And a thousand AA meetings and years lost of your life. That, that, just, the, the, that rate of remission is so abysmally low doing that is 5%, 5 to 20%. So why are we going to do that? I'm not going to scare somebody. My God, if they crashed their car, lost their wife already, and that hasn't stopped them, I don't think any negative consequence is going to stop somebody. So then we have to work on positive motivation and, and clearing up, always clearing up the logical errors, then couple it with positive motivation. And people change. If they're given the truth, they change because it's yeah. their decision, and I let it be their decision. Yeah, I love everything you just said. It makes total sense to me. Because I think a lot of us operate, those of us who've never struggled with it or never been through a treatment program or whatever, you're operating from what you've seen in the movies, you know, or maybe what you've kind of heard from a single conversation from a family member or friend, right? You've right. never lived that experience that maybe you've learned, you've lived as, as both an addict and then an instructor. Um, and, you know, so we have this idea, I think, that like addicts are just these wild, out of control people, you know, the whether they're your suburban neighbor and because we just sort of see those highlights of that person's life where they're in that out of control mode. Yeah. Um, but, you know, everybody that I personally know that has struggled with addiction that is an adult 
most of us were teens, right? Like you, like yourself, right? right? That that period from like fifteen to twenty-five is when most of my friends went nuts. Yep, got it, got got right. it under control. And maybe you should talk about that teen addiction and kind of why those years are the most out of control for people. Yeah, because I think it kind of validates your points in a lot of ways. Is that so you just wake up one day and you go, "This is I'm I'm not gonna live like an idiot anymore." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we grow out of addiction with boring regularity, okay? <laughs> <laughs> and, and there's no fanfare. I tell parents all the time. Steve Slate, one of the authors, uh, he he's awesome. He did a, a TED talk, and he said, uh, you know, when parents freak out. We call it the playground effect. You know, a kid falls off of the swing and everybody's like, oh, my God. You know, well, if you if you don't react, the kid kind of looks around and goes, oh, I guess it didn't hurt. It's you so know? true. Yeah. The bigger that, deal that, you make it, the bigger deal they make it. Yeah, that's right. And, and our society makes a kid who smokes weed after school. It's a big deal. And it's not. It's I'm sorry, but it's not. And let's say that the kid is shooting heroin. Let's get serious. Right. Everybody is going to freak out. But we know, we know that 96% of people will stop. Now, what's scary about that is, and I don't want to minimize this, is, of course, threat of overdose and fentanyl in the, in the drug supply, right? Very serious. Sad. 100,000 people died during COVID because of this. Um, so I'm not minimizing that. I want to be careful with the audience. But when you look at the aggregate of people that use heroin, it's a small percentage, you know, and most people get over the problem, you know. And so one of the things that we have to start doing is, well, let me back up too. when you're a teenager, you can live in fantasy. There's a reason that when you're young, you're able to get away with acting like a jackass. Right. Because genuinely, if I pass out on my front lawn in the ninth grade, which I did do, by the way, um, I'm a legend. You do that. At, <laughs> you do that at 40. And you are a loser. Yeah, which when we think of addicts, like that's the guy you think of, like the 45-year-old drunk guy face down in his yard or got a DUI. But the vast majority of people that I know that struggled with addiction were in their early 20s in college. That's exactly. And that's where it peaks. It peaks at 25, and then it precipitously goes down very linear till 70. And by 70, basically, it's extinguished itself out of the culture. So when you factor in age, you're, you're, you're simply going to stop. I mean, nine out of 10, more than nine out of 10 times, you're going to just look out the way you described and say, you know what? You're sitting on your couch one day and you go, I don't want to stick a needle into my arm. I had hepatitis last year. I'm done with this. Shit's getting crazy. I'm done. And that is the vast majority. But the treatment industry would act as if that population doesn't exist. They don't want you to know about the, all the people and, 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 and all those people. How did they do it? That's what I looked at. I said, you know what? Nobody seems to be studying those people. Yet that's the vast majority of the population that gets over the problem. Let's look at what they did. And then I incorporated all of that into the freedom model, which is the natural process of changing the preference in your life and evolving as a human. Fascinating. So, you know, um, people often kind of struggle with like thoughts and ideas when they're addicts, you know, they say, I hate getting high. I hate getting drunk, but they continue to, to do it. And that's one of the mystifying things when you're kind of outside of that circle, you're like, well, if you hate it, why don't you just stop? Which feeds oh, the idea that it's a disease that is compulsory, yes, compulsory. Yes. So like, what do you say to those people? How does the model address that? Uh, that's really that. I'm so glad you brought this up. I'm so glad. So 
a guy says, crashes his car, his wife's totally pissed off, right? Kids are embarrassed at school. Dad's in the front page of the newspaper. He gets home after they bail him out of jail. I know a little about this. <laughs> and, and then he sits there and he goes, I, I hate this. I hate this so much. I don't know why I do it. Now, let me tell you something. And I want everyone in the audience to hear this. He absolutely, he or she absolutely knows why he does it because he likes it. Okay. Now he's not, well, he or she is not going to say that right. to society that is judging, maybe justifiably so, the chaos that has become the collateral damage of use. You've just nailed what it's like for the adult children of alcoholics because you know they're full of it. You know they're telling you the opposite of what they. You're just saying this for my benefit. Why are you lying to me? That's, That's the, really the, insightful. the yeah. frustrating part about it is I know you love it. To quit. Otherwise, you wouldn't stop. You would stop doing it. You, yeah. you, you know, that's the hard part about it is that, like, I'm so glad you called the BS out because that's exactly what it is. Yeah, the, I, because I used to do it. I used to do it, you know, <laughs> and we have in culturally in research circles what we call the license to misbehave in Western culture, which is I drink or drug and therefore I'm given a it's not literally a paper license, but it may as well be like, here's your card tonight. You can cheat on your wife and get away with it because you're drunk. Right. Right. So it's the license to misbehave or lowered inhibitions. We have a chapter on that that goes into the research behind all this, this really wild behavior and ideas that our culture lets you get away with. But when you run out of the license, eventually the, the license card gets a little weak, right? And because just the chaos is piling down. That's when you pull out the other card, which is, I don't know what's wrong with me. I think I have a disease. Now the rehab starts. And then the family programs start and they start telling the family, yes, he's diseased. We have to lower the stigma. He, he really, he or she can't stop themselves from this. They have chronic relapsing brain disease, right? Their brain chemistry is altered and hijacked. And we have an entire appendices that disproves the brain disease theory. Um, and it, all of this is a way of shoveling people, groups of people into a, into a box that they're an addict and they need treatment. And then they just, are regurgitated through a system that is highly ineffective. And actually it's damaging because it's stopping them from addressing the reality that they like it and that we have to see if what they're getting out of that experience is real and valid or not. And that's another whole topic in and of itself. All right. So what's the one piece of advice that you could offer someone struggling with substance abuse that's listening to this? Cause I'm sure there's somebody listening going, I don't even know where to start. I'm just overwhelmed. I know I want to quit. I know I want to stop lying to people and myself. I, I just don't know what to do. Okay, a couple of things. And I want, I, want, I want to be really clear. First, I want you to know that you can absolutely, no matter how bad things are, absolutely 100% get over the problem and move on with your life. Without meetings, without rehabs, without endless therapies, without being broken down to be built back up again, without any of that, you can move forward. You need the right information. And then you have to have the willingness to maybe move your life in a very different, but more positive direction. And you have to stop looking at all the consequences because that's not going to motivate you for very long. It just won't. So that would be in a nutshell what I would tell somebody. And then I would also tell them to give me a call. If they, if they just can't get their act together, give, give me or Danny White a call at 
Now, what about the people who are struggling? You know, they're they're living with somebody that's going through this—a parent, a loved one. Like, you know, how how what would you say to them? How can they get their family help? That's one of the most difficult things. Is you've got that out of control family member. How do you how do you try to get them on board with making some changes? Uh, well, the first thing I would say is call us at that number again, and and I imagine you'll post it somewhere on the podcast. But sure, I'll put it um, in the show notes. Okay. And then uh, if you don't want to call, I would say join uh, just for a month, join the Freedom Model International membership. You can get that at online.thefreedommodel.org and go into the family program. We have an entire 12 uh, video tutorial on how the family can break free from the fear, the worry, the guilt, the pain, and how to independently maybe build barriers or boundaries and figure out what it is that that you want for your loved one and for yourselves. And that is a, a huge conversation that's beyond the scope of, of what we're talking about now. I bet this costs like hundreds of dollars. That you're, All this stuff that you're talking about, I bet it's like thousands. These treatment programs are so expensive. Like, you know, what do you, what are you, like, how, how, do, how are you going to help me? How, what does it cost? Where do I get started? Well, first of all, you can have the book for free. The entire curriculum and how to move past this can be had for free by going on to thefreedommodel.org, thefreedommodel.org, and use promo code FREEDOM100, the numeral 100, so FREEDOM100, coupon code, and you can download the entire Freedom Model curriculum for free. That's number one. Second thing is, if you need more help than that, you, you learn by video, join the membership for a month. It's 39 bucks. That's at Freedom Model International Membership. Um, and then if you need more than that, then we do private instruction. That's $4,800, 4800 And that's we teach you the entire curriculum together one-on-one from the comfort of home. And then lastly, for about $20,000, you could come to my retreat for four weeks, and I or Michelle will teach you directly one-on-one. It's an all-day thing for, for four weeks and, uh, and learn. I mean, you get a you get it for free. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, yeah. I make sure that there, that nobody ever had an excuse not to know the truth. I love that. Yeah, and your website, just looking at it, it's got videos. You've got a podcast. Can you talk about your podcast? Yeah, it's it's now highly ranked. We uh, I saw that yesterday. We're ranked like three now. I didn't even know that. I I, I looked yesterday. So um, yeah, look at I wanted to, I wanted people to be able to to now we have it as a video like this, which is pretty cool. Um, but I wanted people just to have a conversation with us. And so me and Michelle present a concept and then we get a ton of messaging and feedback. We also do Facebook lives twice a month. We have, uh, I think, 90 or, or, or more videos on our YouTube channel. All of this is free. So we, we do a trim. We do more free information than any other program in the world. That's awesome. Yeah. So check out the Addiction Solution podcast. They got a blog, the Freedom Model Video Vault, social media, all that good stuff is at thefreedommodel.org. Uh thanks so much for your time, Mark. Like give us give us just like the you know, the closing thoughts that you want to share with people. Okay. There's three things that you were born with that makes you a very resilient, amazing, miraculous person. And that is you have autonomy, meaning you are your own person and nobody can read your mind and you can think whatever you want. You're completely independent and that's freedom. You're free within the mind. 
Uh, the next thing is that we have what's called the positive drive principle. You are motivated by the pursuit of happiness at all times. Uh, that's a whole different discussion. But the good news is that's inherent to every human being. And lastly, you have free will. So you're a chooser. And uh, look at humans make space shuttles. We're not an animal, right? Animals can't do that. We do amazing things. So this idea that you can't get over a drug problem is not true. And lastly, you don't have a chronic, progressive, uh, incurable disease. That's a lie. It's a simple, uh, logical error. And uh, if you want to know more, read the book or, you know, come to our retreat or whatever. Mark Sheeran, chairman of the Freedom Model. Thefreedommodel.org is their website. Go check out their stuff. Read their books. Get their tapes. Get the podcast. All that good stuff. Really, really love the conversation. It was really thoughtful and, and insightful. And love to have you back to talk about some of this stuff in the future, you know. And so please, please feel free to reach out. And uh, hopefully our audience reaches out to you. And uh, I just really appreciate your time. It was great. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. It's it's exciting to be able to talk about it. Great. Thank you. We'll talk to you soon. All right.